Please be seated. As we prepare for the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word, let's pray in that direction to prepare our hearts together as Christ's body, the church. Lord God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we rest in the salvation that you give us and have called us into, and we are also restless in a sense to see that salvation work itself out in us through faith working through love. So now by your Holy Spirit, through which you inspired this word, speak to us again in this place, not only for our own benefit, but for your great glory and our joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Follow your heart. It's the mantra of seemingly everyone from Steve Jobs to Elsa from the Frozen movies. We've all said it. We've all had it said to us. At its best, I think what it can refer to is that inner sense of creativity that drives us to innovate and to create the best works of art and humanity. So there is a good sense to it. But there's also another questionable sense to the phrase, follow your heart. And it has something to do with this sense. Let your heart guide you in every action, unrestricted from anything from outside yourself. Listen to your inner voice alone. Don't let anything else hold you back. Steve Jobs says it like this. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of other people's opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and your intuition. Now, Steve Jobs is an impressive guy, but he's not nearly as impressive as Elsa, so let's give deference to her. I think she sums it up more eloquently in the song, Let It Go, which I've heard many, many times. <laughs> many times. She says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. First, I want to make a controversial peripheral statement, and that is to say that Moana, the Disney movie, is vastly superior to Frozen, the Disney movie. <laughs> and I think Encanto also beats Frozen, okay? And that's, I'm going to make some enemies here tonight. Um, the second thing is to say, isn't it interesting how this follow your heart phrase has uh, sort of an unspoken age restriction? When adults say it, man, I followed my heart and it led me to do this, people go, that's courageous. That's so bold, that's so courageous, you followed your heart. But if our kids really operated by the no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free mantra, man would be in trouble as parents. So we don't, we don't think it's courageous when they follow that. But why should that be the case? Let's follow me to the edge of absurdity here for a second. Imagine if instead of like 1 Corinthians hanging over your doorpost when you come in your house or the Shema, you know, the Lord is one, some verse from the Bible, it said, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. That's the family mantra. How would that play out for those who have children and grandchildren, right? I'll tell you how it would play out. It would be follow your hearts, which to a child would lead straight to a pepperoni pizza breakfast followed by ice cream at about seven o'clock in the morning. Now, it sounds delicious, I won't lie. Some of you may have had that this morning. 
Um, it's not the most nutritious way to start the day, let's just say that. But what could we say? They're being courageous, they're following their hearts, it's good. Next, it would, they'd follow their hearts directly into your bank account, probably. And all of a sudden, you'd see charges coming up for thousands of dollars of Robux from the game Roblox and all sorts of weird stuff for iPads and Minecraft. But we'd congratulate them, well done. Well done, you followed your heart. You were true to yourself. Just follow your heart. I mean, it's one of the most common, comforting, destructive, deadly pieces of advice that could ever be given. And what does Jesus say? We heard the gospel just a minute ago. He says in Matthew 15, verses 19 through 20, that it's out of the human heart that comes every destructive, sinful action. Sexual immorality, greed, theft, slander. This comes when we follow our heart, when it's not guided by God's word. Follow your heart. Maybe, maybe it would be better to give the heart something else to follow. And what we'll find today in 2 Peter's passage is that Peter teaches us how to cultivate hearts that follow the word in a world that tells the heart to follow itself. We're going to look at this in terms of three mantras that track along with 2 Peter 1 verse 12 all the way to 2 Peter 2 verse 3. And they're these, the myth mantra, follow your heart rather than a merely mythical Jesus. The second is the merely human mantra. Follow your heart because the Bible is a merely human book. And the third is follow your heart because it feels good. It just feels right. It just feels good. That's probably the most popular one. So track with me, open up if you would, to 2 Peter 1 verses 16 through 18. I'll read it again to orient us and we'll dive into the word. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You see, the myth mantra existed in Peter's time, and it still exists today. And here's what it basically says. Jesus in scripture is really a mythical husk. And if you remove those outer layers, what you find is a stoic Jesus spouting things that would fit on a bumper sticker, a tame Jesus, a controlled Jesus who's under our control and who never talks about, you know, depressing stuff like judgment or hard stuff like holiness. But what did Peter's original audience mean by a mythical Jesus? It's the claim they were making. What they were talking about, we touched on it last week a bit, is that Jesus would return, but that he would not return to judge the world. He would not return to judge the world. They didn't believe that Jesus was both king and judge. But Peter says, oh, hold on a second, let's address that. In verse 16 is where he starts. He says, we believe in the power and coming of Jesus. How does that help what I'm saying about judgment? Well, the power and coming of Jesus is literally translated the power and parousia of Jesus. Now, that word parousia, if you've never heard it, don't worry about it. I'll explain it. Parousia means what the, is a technical term in the New Testament to refer to Jesus' second coming to judge the living and the dead. And we recite that in the creeds every week. And we see it across all of Holy Scripture. In fact, we see it in 2 Peter 
where Peter threw out in chapter 2, verses 1 and following says that these teachings are destroying people. Then if you go a little further into verse 3 and then verses 4 through 10, he says that people are being condemned and will be punished and will be judged for this teaching that says there is no judgment. Then you go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7 and then 17, and he uses the language of destruction there. That those who are teaching these things will be destroyed and those who are following those things will be destroyed because of it. And so this, I say that in a sense just to show you, when you hear a preacher two weeks in a row mention judgment, it's not because I like to get up here and say, fire and brimstone, that's my favorite thing to say. But we ignore it at our own peril and ignorance if it is so clearly woven throughout the word of God. It has nothing to do with whether I like it or want it or you like it. It's what does the Bible say? That's all we have to go on and we should submit ourselves to it. But why was judgment such an issue in, back in the day and today? Well, it means that you're not allowed to just follow your own heart wherever it takes you, but that you're meant to organize your life around the commands and teachings of God and only then follow your heart as it is directed by his word. Well, of course, some may say, you're listening, John, you're listening to Peter and Paul. They've wrapped that mythical husk around the true Jesus. Peel that away so that we can get back to our hippie Christ. And is that really a possibility when we consult Jesus himself? A lot of people say, I don't want to listen to Paul. I want to listen to Jesus, man. So let's do that. Let's listen to what Jesus says about judgment. Parable of the weeds in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says this. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's from the lips of Jesus, not from the land of make-believe. Not only in Jesus and not only in Peter and Paul, but if you consult the entire Old Testament, what do you see? God just sitting back, relaxing, saying, do whatever you want. God is judging sin in the nations. God is judging Israel as they disobey his commands, sending them into exile. And so at some point, as hard as it is to reckon with the idea that judgment is real, we have to ask ourselves, who are the real myth makers? Is it Jesus? Is it Paul and Peter? Is it the entire Old Testament? Or are the myth makers those who are trying to take the word in a different direction by following their hearts instead of the word? Who are the real myth makers? Well, what does Peter do? Peter responds, and what does he respond with? He says in the following verses, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter responds to the claim of mythology with the claim about Jesus' historicity. Jesus is not a myth. He's a historical figure. And how does he do it, though? Well, he turns to a kind of a weird verse in Scripture. In verses 17 and 18, you could see it there in your Bible. 
Peter calls forth the transfiguration of Jesus. Interestingly, yesterday was actually the feast of the transfiguration. Um, what is the transfiguration? Jesus is on the mountain and the voice of God calls out and said, this is my beloved son. Peter calls that forth to prove that Jesus is not a myth, but a historical figure who saves us. But how does that help anything? Peter's like, look at this weird verse about Jesus on the mountain. He's historical. How does that work? You have to know a little bit about the transfiguration story in the gospels. That story is drawing from an Old Testament text. Which text? Psalm 2. Why does that matter? Because Psalm 2 is being interpreted by the whole New Testament and the apostles as a messianic prophecy about the Messiah who would come. And what does Psalm 2 teach us? That the Messiah would be, and hear this, king and judge. Not just king, not just judge, but king and judge. The very thing that Peter's opponents were trying to kind of push away. Jesus is not a myth, Peter is saying. He's the Messiah. And the Messiah has been prophesied not only in the first century, but from the beginning in the word of God. I mean, look at Psalm 2. I'll read from verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion on my holy hill. You see how that would, the early church could hear that and link it to the transfiguration on the mountain? I will tell of the decree, it says. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Can you hear the echoes of that in 2 Peter? You are my son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Jesus is not a mythological fairy tale Christ. He is the historical and faithful Messiah, the Christ, the one prophesied from the beginning of history, finding its culmination in the person of Jesus. The true myth is not Jesus. The true myth is the humanistic husk that we put around him to make him more easy to understand. Peel away that husk and you will draw very close to the living God in his son and you'll be able to follow not just your own heart but your heart as it is framed and formed by the Jesus of history, not the Jesus of mythology. He's not a myth, he's Messiah. The second mantra is the merely human mantra. And that comes up in the following verses, starting at verse 19. And it goes like this. Follow your hearts rather than a merely human book. They were probably thinking something like we would say today. And maybe you've said something like this. Why should our lifestyles today reflect this archaic way in the Bible? Sure, we like salvation and some of the stories of Jesus and some of the things he says. But there's other stuff in the Bible that's really just from men. It's just, it's like a literary artifact. And they didn't know the cultural stuff we know now. And they didn't know the psychological stuff we know now. And the scientific stuff we know now. So we could sort of cast that off. The Bible's merely a human book. Well, what does Peter say in response to this? 
he strongly affirms the opposite, that the Bible is divinely inspired and is the product of men, not who are carried along by looking into their own hearts, but for who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, he says. And he says here that the prophetic word was fully confirmed. What does that mean? Underneath that is the meaning that it is persistent. It is reliable. It is unwavering in what it teaches. But why does he use this phrase prophetic word? Why not just say scripture? Well, because in the ancient world, if you read the Jewish texts of the time, and if you read in the early church fathers like Justin Martyr in his dialogues after the New Testament was written, when they used the phrase prophetic word, they weren't referring just to this or that prophecy in scripture. They were referring to the whole of scripture. And what does Peter say? This prophetic word is the result of men and prophets who were carried along not by the whims of their own hearts and their own desires, but by the very Holy Spirit of God. That's what we have when we come to God's word. It's not a myth. It's not a man-made book, but it's coming, becoming increasingly common, even in conservative churches and amongst often, I guess I'll speak to the college age students and the high school age students here, among that demographic of Christians to say, look, the Bible's, yeah, it's a book, but the Bible's not really the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. There's some stuff in the Bible that's kind of goofy and embarrassing and we, we don't know what to do with it really, but you know, don't blame us because it's really just about Jesus. We can kind of you know, shift that other stuff out of the way and demote that and then focus on Jesus alone. The Bible is not the word of God, they'll say. Jesus is. Of course, there's a logical impossibility here that is often just breezed over when people say that. We have no access to Jesus, the word, except through the inspired scripture, which is the written word of God, right? We cannot say Jesus is the word of God because we have to learn that from John 1 and to learn that from John 1, uh-oh, where do we need to go? To the Bible. No matter how many times I say this, people get angry with me. If you're angry at me today, I'm sorry, but I got to speak the truth. This is what Peter is teaching us. I was at a public debate and I actually kind of like it, a public debate when someone gets angry because at least it's exciting. You know, you get stuff going and you're like, okay, you can just tell when you look at someone when they stand up and the mic's going over to them and, and they get this face. And you go, the, the eyebrows are moving. That's a good sign that this is going to be slightly hostile. And he said to me, why do we need to have the Bible? Why can't we just have the Beatitudes? Now the Beatitudes are in Matthew where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. Right? And I said, I love the Beatitudes. What, I mean, why would you, what would give you that idea? I said to him and he said, well, the Beatitudes are in the Sermon on the Mount. And I said, I love the Sermon on the Mount. Where would you ever hear though about the Sermon on the Mount? And he says, the Gospel of Matthew. He's really adamant. And then you know what's coming next. What's the next logical conclusion? And where would you hear about the gospel of Matthew? And at that point, it was like when you have your iPhone and you're taking a cute video and you forgot you set it to slow motion. And you go back and watch it after. It's like, and where would you get the gospel of Matthew? And it was like it just went slow-mo. In the Bible. And it was just like everything stopped. And he just sat down. Couldn't do a mic drop because I was wearing one of these, but um, that would have been the place. So just a graceful mic drop. Grace, 
and truth. <laughs> That's a bit snarky, sorry. <laughs> but it's from a place of love. I'm just following my heart. Oh, boy. Back to the text, man. The Bible is not in competition with Jesus. The way that we come to know Jesus is through the words of the Bible. If you demote the Bible, you destroy the path to Christ. There is no other way to find Jesus except through the words of Holy Scripture. And Scripture, as Martin Luther once said, is the crib in which Christ the Word comes to us. Or as the Council of Orange said, ignorance of the Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Jesus is not a myth, Peter says. We were eyewitnesses. Jesus is not part of a man-made book. He comes to us through the Spirit-inspired words of the living God. And lastly, Jesus does not give us a feel-good mantra. Follow your heart because it feels good. We love, everybody wants to feel good, right? So there's nothing wrong with that. This idea of I gotta follow my heart to wherever it takes me because it feels good. Well, what does Peter say in chapter two, verse one? He says that the false prophets were pitching this feel-good philosophy and does he say, oh, no worries, it was fine. It was just one of many views. No, he says it was a destructive heresy. That's what Peter says. That's strong word against the teaching. It's a destructive heresy. In fact, in verses one to three of chapter two, in the span of three verses, three times Peter says, the teaching is destructive. It will destroy you if you follow it. And it will destroy those who are teaching it. Right? And so there's no way to come out of that and go, oh, maybe it's okay. It's destructive. And what is the essence of this destructive error? Peter tells us in verse 2, sensuality. Now we hear that and we go, here we go with the Christians. You know, they're going to focus on the sexuality stuff. Sensuality in, includes, of course, human sexuality, but it goes way beyond that. It really means more like self-abandonment in every area of life. Not just with our bodies, with our minds, with everything we do. The idea that there's no boundaries for me. I just got to be free. I just have to follow my heart because it feels good. It's the gospel according to Elsa. Peter, sorry, I'm going to have a lot of little girls that are angry at me at the end of this one tonight. I like Disney, man. I like the Disney movies, okay? The music's good. What's the end result of this destructive error? The way of truth is blasphemed. Oh, Peter must be talking about theology. Like the stuff that you get in seminary, not the stuff that everyday folk need. Well, first of all, that's, that's not good anyway. That's, that's a kind of misnomer. The way of truth is not simply a statement about Christian doctrine, as important and crucial as that is. If you look at Psalm 119, verse 30, if you look at James chapter 5, verse 19, if you look further on in the early church fathers in 1 Clement 35, verse 5, whenever you see this phrase, way of truth, it's not just like theological stuff. It means the way of life as it is following the commands of God. The way of truth is the way of life not as it abandons all constraints, but as it accepts the holy constraints that God puts on us, not to take away our freedom, but to exponentially increase our freedom and to focus it through his word in Jesus. Another way to say it is this. The gospel is not meant to operate apart from ethics. Ethics are part of the gospel. It's not like we'll take the Jesus stuff, but just kind of 
all those weird teachings that Christians have that are really hard to follow. We don't need those. The early church, Jesus Peter said, the ethical teaching of Christ and the apostles is part of the deposit. When the Bible talks about it elsewhere in the pastorals, it calls it sound doctrine, which sounds like, you know, like astute sort of scholarly language. But when you hear the Bible talking about sound doctrine, that word sound means healthy. And you do not get healthy spirituality by looking within apart from God's word. The mythical Jesus mantra, the merely human Bible mantra, the feel-good mantra, they all invite us to a so-called freedom, but what they really lead us into is the path of destruction. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Don't be trapped by dogma which is living with the results of other people's thinking. It's the gospel according to Steve. It's the gospel according to Elsa. It's not the gospel according to Jesus, though. The heart left to its own devices, unchecked, is an instrument of destruction, not an instrument of human flourishing. And the reason that Peter is so on about judgment and holiness is not because he enjoys condemnation. He's gleeful about it. Yay, I get to talk about this again. The reason that Peter is so on about judgment is not because he enjoys condemnation, but because he understands sin's consequences. And the truth is this. We know that we can be and are forgiven by faith in Christ, but anyone who's lived long enough knows that even though you're forgiven, the consequences of your destructive action don't just disappear the day that God pronounces that forgiveness. You know what I'm saying? The consequences of sin are not incidental. They're positively destructive. They destroy life where life should flourish. Sin is not just making a little mistake. It's potentially increasing destruction in the hearts of yourself and the hearts of others. One exhortation as we go. Sometimes in the contemporary church, it's hard to live in the world. We work with people that we like. A lot of them aren't Christians. You may be here today and you're not a Christian. You're most welcome to be here and press into truth. We have to be careful as Christians living in a post-Christian society, in a post-modern world, that we don't see it as the humble position to say nothing. You know what I mean? It's become, it's humble to acquiesce. It's humble to be indefinite about what the Bible speaks. It's humble to just not say anything because it's easier and quite frankly more comfortable to do that. We seem more humble. We seem more Jesus-y or something. Peter does not say that that's humility. Friends, when you are going up against so great a cloud of witness that includes not only Jesus, but all of the apostles and the entire Bible, it is not humility to say that what the word of God says should be different than it is. That's not humility, Peter says. That's heresy. And the problem with heresy is not just that it's incorrect. It's that it brings destruction into the world, chaos consequences. So here's the word of the gospel for you today as we conclude. If you have followed your heart, like most of us have, into places of brokenness that you cannot fix, that you cannot put back together, take heart. Take heart because Jesus, not the myth, but the Messiah is strong enough to heal and reconcile what you and I could not hold together. He will leave no stone unturned in the salvation of his people. He will bring it, in fact, 
to full renewal in a new heavens and a new earth. That is good news. So therefore, let us not condemn ourselves when we look at all the times that we've followed our heart and in so doing have broken the heart of someone else that we care about. Instead, let us pray by God's grace and his spirit that he might cultivate in us hearts that follow the word in a world that tells the heart to follow itself. Let's pray. Lord God, we need you. We are your sons and daughters, but we are broken vessels. Anchor us, weak vessels in you, O Lord. We are nothing without you. Anchor us, weak vessels in you, O Lord. We are nothing without you. We're nothing without you. We need you, God, today. And so in word and sacrament, break further into our hearts. Work on us and conform us to your image for our joy and your glory. In Jesus' holy, mighty name, amen.